Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in, indeed welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Howdy, partner. And our guest... Set, this is like scenario. this is like the Mickey Mouse Club, where every at the end of the credits you'd see uh, Donald Duck bang the gong and get it in a different way every week. It's just like that. It's just like that. Just like that. And our guest is Ron <laughs> Rod Belcher, author of Shotgun Arcana from Tour Books. Welcome to the show, Rod. Well, thank you so much, Gene. It's nice to nice to be here, and thank you and Susan for inviting me. Yeah, this is this is some pretty awesome stuff. This I I. It is, not. it is magical adventure in the wild west. Okay? Yeehaw! It is, it is urban <laughs> fantasy, but not the kind of urban you're thinking of. <laughs> I, I, uh, Susan, of course, is the one who manages to power through the books every week, and she's a uh, communications major and licensed to communicate. She's, <laughs> she is by far the fastest reader I have ever met in okay. my life, and uh, wow. it, it saves it saves me every week because she makes me sound so much more intelligent than I am. <laughs> and, well, thank you for the compliment, but meanwhile, back at the book. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, she read the entire book, and I've read some of it, so. Uh, this is the second in, in the series. The first is the Six-Gun Tarot, and, uh, uh, yes. and, you, and you can read the second book without having read the first book. I, I had no trouble picking up what what had gone before or that I needed to know about and uh, uh we just went went off on this galvanting adventure. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you said that and I'm glad that it worked out that way cuz when I was writing it um I have a I have a little bit of a pet peeve about series. I I get a little frustrated when I'm reading a series and and you get so many books in that if you're a new reader you're just lost um without having read the like 12 books that came before or something like that. So I, I really did want to be able to... I wrote the first one to stand alone by itself because I didn't know if there was going to be a second one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, and then I wrote the second one to stand by itself because I, I really I think that's important. I want someone to be able to pick it up and read it and enjoy it without having to... I'm hoping you know that they'll want to go back and read the other books, but uh, I didn't want to make it a necessity. So thank you. I'm glad you liked it and we're able to kind of... I left enough in there to... some And I actually... That was... An issue was was trying to figure out exactly how much to put in there from the first book, without boring people who had already read it or completely losing people who hadn't. So yeah, you managed mission. to do that without like you know lapsing into a long introduction. Like yeah, you didn't. Yeah, you didn't have to. You didn't have to drop an exposition bomb on us. If you could describe for the listening audience uh, what Shotgun Arcana is. 
I, I really looked at it when I was writing it as a horror series more so than fantasy. Uh, however, uh, my editor, uh, Greg Cox, with uh, with Tor, and Greg is an amazing editor, and um, uh, Greg really thought it was more of a, of a wider spectrum of fantasy than, than just kind of horror. So uh, Six Gun and Shotgun are both um, fantasy uh, set in uh, the Wild West. It, it, it kind of straddles a whole bunch of genres. There There is some horror elements to it. Uh, uh, I've had several folks uh, who have... Uh, said they were kind of surprised by how much kind of yucky, scary stuff was in them. But uh, you know, they're, they're Shotgun Arcana specifically is the second book in the series. Uh, it is Western fantasy with some scary stuff thrown in. Now, Ed, so. my first impression when I uh, when I started reading was that you have the Western novel feel to it. I mean, this is this is Louis L'Amour turned up to eleven. Yeah, I actually <laughs> one of the things when I pitched it, an editor from Tor at DragonCon several many years ago, when I pitched uh, Six Gun, and the way I pitched it was this is if Zane Gray and H.P. Lovecraft decided to get together and write a book. Oh, <laughs> that's a good line. Yeah, that's line. a yeah. And, uh, and that's, apparently it worked because I, good... I, I mean she she was she was interested in it. And I got I got very fortunate in that. But uh, that that's uh, a great pitch. That's a well, great pitch. It, I got I got lucky. I mean I and I will be honest when I was writing Six Gun I thought who is going to want to buy this this really kind of screwball western because it's it's got a little bit of everything and it's got you know, got zombie stuff and it's got um uh, a lot of different mythologies and, and just a whole, a whole chi- bunch of got a whole Chinatown attached to the town of yes Kondorf, yeah and it's just weird stuff all over and um but uh, I seem to have gotten you know very kind feedback from a lot of folks that they seem to kind of like all this stuff kind of thrown together like that and uh, yeah actually the traditional western one of the things I really wanted to do starting with Six Gun and kind of going forward, is I loved Westerns. When I was a kid, I grew up with with all you know, all the Clint Eastwood spaghetti Westerns. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to go to the drive-in movies, and they had these things called Trinity, which the Trinity Westerns were basically cheap knockoffs of the Clint Eastwood, you know, Man With No Name mm-hmm. Westerns. Mm-hmm. And they, they, were a little, they didn't take themselves quite as seriously either. They were a little more tongue-in-cheek. And um, I really loved Western. So when I was writing this, I really wanted to take like the feel of a traditional Western. I wanted to do a lot of the kind of the plots and stuff that you have in a traditional Western and then just throw them in a blender and just turn them on their ear as much as I could. So I tried to try to deconstruct it as, as well as kind of like having fun with it. Cause I, I mean, I really did. I love the notion of Westerns. So, I mean, I thank you. It's nice to hear you say that. Cause I mean, I really did try to get the, kind of the traditional feel of a Western in there and then just, just completely mess with it as much as I could. I bet a lot of sheriffs out there wish they couldn't die, too. <laughs> well, I'm not saying he can't die. I, I hear that a lot, you know, the sheriff who can't die. Uh, and he, and uh, John Highfather plays with that, kind of like Batman uses his reputation. Sort of John Highfather does the same kind of thing to, to scare people. But uh, I can't confirm or deny that he is unkillable. He seems to be so far. But, uh, you know, if, 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 if I just come out and say he's unkillable, it kind of takes a little bit of the... The, the worry out of it. And I've, I've really tried to stick him in some really bad situations in the last couple of books to, uh. And boy, don't you. I, I have fun with that. It, it, but, uh, I, I do have a kind of an end game for John. I hope I get to write enough books to, to play that out. I'd really like to do that. And actually, John is named after my son. So. Well, Emily is something special too. I really like, you know, and, and I thought, uh, Greg, I thought my editor was going to kind of lose his mind when I was throwing more characters into the second one because there's a lot of characters to keep track of. There's, there's, sure there's, there's, are. There are, and and uh, but they all have a place, you know. They all have I, a role to play. Well, and every chapter almost reads like a like a short story. 
I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you set it up, you set up each one, you introduce the characters, you set up the scenario, and there's a story to be told for that chapter. And then it comes to an end, and then you cut to a completely different scene and a new set of characters, and, uh, uh, the point of view, uh, jumps around. Well, it's, every it's single, kind of like having every a, single chapter. reading a ch- every different chapter in the, like a pulp magazine, you know? Yeah. 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 I, well, I, I really, and, and I've gotten, you know, sometimes I get dinged for this, and other times people really seem to dig it, but I I really like the notion of not having, that it being sort of an, an ensemble, that it's, mm-hmm. that it's a, you know, there is no main character, and some people, that drives them crazy. I, I disagree because, with that. I disagree with yeah. that statement about there not being a main character, but continue. So, well, I, I guess there's, you know, I guess Six Gun was focused a bit on Jim. Uh, I think Shotgun is probably focused a little bit more on Malachi Big. But, um, but I, I really, I mean, and it's funny too because I get people ask me what's your favorite character, and I, I kind of love all of them for one reason or another. They're all really fun characters to write, and I've tried to make them as, uh, as, as real as I can. Um, you know, which is that in itself is a lot of fun, and and sometimes it's it could be. Interesting because you want it would be much easier if your character did X, but they don't want to do that, mm-hmm. so they they do Y, and you just have to kind of deal with that. So, um, but I, I kind of I like, like to the, hate some of them, but yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 uh, I just I like the idea that you know, and even the town. I tried to make a town the town into a character. Bingo. Sort of, you know, there you go. That's what I was getting. That's at. where he was going. The main character in the book is Golgotha. Yeah, I would I would agree with that because I I sort of fell in love with the whole notion of Golgotha. I like the idea of this of this love hate relationship with. The, I mean, I read one review somebody had written, and they're like, "Who would live in this place?" I mean, it's like you know, <laughs> yeah, you have, that you, is a you point. Have, you know, that's flying bat things coming down and grabbing people, and armies of serial killers riding through, and all this other stuff, and uh, whatever they're pulling out of that mine. And it was never clear to me what kind of a mine it was. <laughs> but yeah. uh, that must be very valuable. So have you um, have you read uh, Six Gun yet, or have you had an opportunity to? Because um, I don't allude to it too much in Shotgun, but um, it was a silver mine, and it it went supposedly went bust. But um, uh, the 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 mine has something at the bottom of it that is that is rather terrible, really? and it's pretty much the big bad in the first one. And um, uh, well, there's still people find... in the mining town. They're... Right. Well, by the end of the first book um the mine has been reopened and um uh i don't want to give too much away i i really would love for you to read it and let me know what you think of it but um basically the town um when you when six gun opens um golgotha is kind of um dying it's drying up because the, the mine's been closed you have a lot of people who mm-hmm. came there kind of looking for their fortune and they're just kind of eking out an existence and when shotgun opens golgotha is booming it's a boom town again mm-hmm. and um uh, and, and a lot of the, the stuff around the mine has to do with, uh, kind of what happens in the first, in the first book. And, and Malachi Bick is, is up to his eyebrows in, in most of it. So, uh, if that, if that like helps he any. Does. Um, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, but I, I really, well, I mean, I've come to kind of, and it's so cool because if you, if you look in the, the hardcover, um, they actually had, Tor had someone do a map for the town. And that is the coolest thing in the world to see something that you completely dreamed up. And I had this, this awful little sketch of it. And I have no talent as an artist whatsoever. None. Zip. Zero. I can do stick figures. And, um, I drew out this map so I could keep track of like which street was where and what, mm-hmm. where the, this, this business was or that business. Mm-hmm. And to have them come up, you know, uh, and, I, and the gentleman's name, I actually thanked him in the, in the dedication, but, um, 
he came up with this amazing map of the whole town and it's just a it is a surreal feeling to look at something that you made up in your head and there's a map of it (laughs) suddenly it's taken on its own life yeah yeah exactly exactly and it's it's very cool so i i do i I agree with you and and i was actually i'm glad that kind of came across as i really did want the town to be um to be one of the characters and then to be you know you know sort of have a have an existence of its own um you really so, know you've made it when they start cosplaying, of course. And... Oh yeah, that that'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, like it's... a werewolf deputy or whatever. You know? Oh, that'd be so awesome! I would love to see that. As that'd I be... was reading the book, I I got the impression that uh, uh, Ron Miller's Batman is to Adam West's 1966 TV show <laughs> as Shotgun Harkana is to the TV show Wild Wild West. Oh, hey, now. There was, like, some weird stuff. There, oh, yeah. In Wild Wild oh, West. yeah. Well, there was. There was. But it was... The reason I brought that up is because, uh, you know, the Wild Wild West is pretty much Western steampunk. Yeah. It's the, yeah. Sa- it's the same period. You know, it's it's uh, a post-Victorian. No, it's it's Victoria. Victor- it's solidly oh, it's Victor- solid. It's Queen Victoria, okay. but it's in America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's the same time period. It's the same t- level Post, of technology. War, you know. You know, but in Shotgun Arcana, you have things like um, a, uh, a holographic imaging system. Oh God, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, that was the a eyeballs. Great scene. I forgot about the eyeballs. Yeah, that was a great <laughs> scene. Yeah, harvested human eyeballs wired up to uh, wire in in little tubes full of bubbling liquid wired up to an imaging system. There was there was some advanced science. This will have some appeal for the steampunk fans. Well, you know, it's without funny actually being brass rails and and yeah. British tea, you know. Yes. Well, I I, I had a little tiny bit of. Um, my my resident mad scientist uh, uh, Clay. Yeah, Clay, uh, Clay Clay Turbo, which is interestingly named because my name is Turnbow with an N. It's uh, at Turlo. Clay, Tur- Clay, Turlo. Turlo. That's it. Turlo. Turnbow. Turlo. Yeah. It's, it's still, close. Still close enough. Sounding. But but, uh, but Clay, you know, in the first one, I wanted him to have a, I wanted to have a scene where he was basically doing an autopsy, and I wanted him to have um, uh, light. I wanted to have you know have a have a strong you know powerful mm-hmm. light for, to be able to examine the body. And I did a lot of research on who was doing research into that sort of stuff. So the 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 light, the little arc lamp that he comes up with in there was, you know, technologically authentic. Basically, Clay was a little ahead of his time by a few years, but there were people working on that stuff at that time. And I actually tried to give him credit by, you know, having Clay. When, whenever Clay mentions, I corresponded with Doctor So and So. Those are real people. They're they're <laughs> folks that I researched and and tried to uh, come up with oh, the awesome. the eyeballs. There was a theory floating around, which, no pun intended, um, but uh, <laughs> there's a theory oh, yes. about oh, uh, you know, basically the eye retaining uh, the last image of being held by it at the time of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and there was actually a, a scientist who pursued that rather vigorously. And I gave him credit. Um, so, I mean, but basically, I went, it was really funny. When I wrote Six Gun, the word steampunk never came into my mind at all. Uh, I never really thought of it as a steampunk book. And it started getting... Um, referred to as that a lot in the, the, the reviews and, and some of the interviews I do and stuff. And, um, and then when I was working on this, this on, the, on, the, on shotgun, I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to crank up the steampunk a little bit and, and have some fun with it. So clay, um, clay and his opposite number, who is one of the bad guys, both have some pretty freaky technology. 
Um, I do the, the the folks that it's apparently uh, based off of their work are real people um, that were really you know messing around with with these kind of theories, but they they never had results like like this. This is what um, makes it yeah. fiction. Right, but I, mean, I was I just had fun with that, and I actually had completely forgotten about the eyeballs. Till you mentioned them, but yeah, um, the uh, the eyeballs were uh, were fun just on a lot of different levels because I like uh, Clay, Clay's job is to creep people out as much as he possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> well, Clay is pretty creepy to start with. I mean, he's he's, he's a doctor, he's a scientist. He's most of his patients aren't alive, but and he's uh, he's working on a big project that he needs body parts for. Yes. And then it's, um, I have not read the part of the book yet where that, uh, what he's working on has been revealed. And I'm anxious to finish the book so I can find out. Cause well, that's, that's got well, some creep factor there. You, being, being a, a young, young lady of the night in, is just not safe on any side oh, of the no, Atlantic, no. is it? Cause. Absolutely cause not. Uh, uh, Golgotha is not a, a safe place for, for anybody, really. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, but there's like a, hookers keep getting, getting killed and sliced off in, and in diced horrifying and... ways. And, yeah, sliced and diced in parts. Yeah, the there's the, the, um, one of the, the main plots in Shotgun has to do with uh, uh, a, a fellow who is referred to as the Dove Killer who is going around town and doing horrible things to, uh, to young ladies. The doves, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the uh, there was something about Clay I was going to mention. Uh, the um, the Some of the stuff that... Uh, it is referenced as far as uh, his little experiment with the body parts and stuff. Uh, some of that rolls back to Six Gun as well. That's a that's a little bit of a, a backstory there, but um, but yeah, I, I really and actually the, one of the fun parts is, is Clay was going to be a fairly minor character. He was supposed to be this kind of this creepy guy in town. Um, I didn't really expect to, to do as much with him, but he's really come to kind of kind of grow on me a little bit because um, part of Clay's backstory, which isn't really alluded to in Shotgun. But it is mentioned briefly in uh, in uh, Six Pantero is that uh, Clay's whole family died from a plague, uh, and he was left alone as a child with the dead bodies for you know a week or two yeah. until until help came out to their to their homestead to find out why no one had come into town, and they discovered that everybody had died. And this was when Clay was very young, so he lost his whole family and then had you know very probably traumatic. Uh, period of time where he was basically just, you know, wandering around amongst all of, all of his family who were all dead. And I tried to kind of make that as, as sort of a, a good rationale for he's, he really hates the concept of death. He, he sees it as an enemy and he also sees it as something that's not immutable, that it's, that it can be. And, and that's kind of a very, you know, Victor Frankenstein, mm-hmm. steampunk so. scientist kind of mentality is that, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, just because we can't cure death right now doesn't mean it's something we can't cure eventually. And, and Clay works on that a lot. And, um, uh, I, it, Clay is one of those characters that, you know, he, he kind of, he ended up being a lot more of a, of a presence in the book than I ever expected him to be. And I'm really glad too, because I mean, I think he's a, a pretty neat character and I've gotten a lot of good, uh, good feedback on him. And he is sort of my, my steampunk gateway character. He's, uh, <laughs> and I had a lot more fun with that in Shotgun, because I mean, it was sort of like, well, you know, if folks, if folks really are wanting this, you know, you know, seeing some steampunk elements here, then I think I'm going to try to give them what they want. So, um, uh, Clay has a, Clay has a nemesis in this one who is, uh, also a mad scientist, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they get to they get to tussle a little bit, which is kind of fun, I think. Flash so. the audience a little bit of ankle there. <laughs> ah, yes, Very, yeah, just just a bit, just, just a, a bit. bit under the petticoats. <laughs> Nothing too scandalous, just a, just a touch. Well, there's a fair uh, amount of true love being found here, which is nice. 
I, I have, uh, I, I, I am kind of a sap for that. I, um, I, I, I believe that, uh, you know, it's really hard to find, and this is just my opinion, but I, I, I think, um, it's, it's, you know, if you're really going to try to write about people and be genuine about it, there's going to be attraction, there's going to be romance and, and things like that. That's just part of being a human being. Even poor Clay, who tries as hard as he can to be the Sheldon Cooper of Golgotha and not have <laughs> anything to do with, you know, he doesn't understand people and he doesn't really care for them. Um, he's got a, I had a, had a friend once who, um, who said that, um, there was a, a mutual person that we knew and they, they were, they were you know, not a very nice person, but they were with someone who was exceedingly nice. And um, the way that was explained is that that other person was kind of like their human insurance. It was somebody who who kept them human, helped keep them kind of grounded, and helped keep them part of part of the human race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I think that you know even Clay, bless his heart, <laughs> uh, ends up having someone who he genuinely cares for and uh, and loves, and uh, goes to great lengths to to try to uh, try to make her happy. And um, so That's I mean, yeah, there, there's a bunch of romance stuff that comes up in, in Shotgun, and um, I think that you know if you just have horror and terror and action, you're really not being fair to your characters or to the folks who are reading about them. Put well, a because... lot of good women characters in this, and they're not all just just uh, ladies of the night either. They're they're working women, they're playing women, there's uh, very learned women. I I love. Um, Kate Warren is one of my favorite characters, uh, one of the new characters in Shotgun. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's a real person. She's historically a real person. Um, she was the first female private investigator in the United States. I thought the she, you know the whole idea of a, a woman and a woman Pinkerton cop was was just a conceit that a number of of the steampunk writers have been throwing in. So they're they really have. Yeah, Kate Warren is a fascinating. Um, Character just her without any embellishment. Her life was amazing. She was um, she walked into Alan Pinkerton's office in New York uh, to get a job. Um, she, apparently that day they were hiring uh, private investigators and they were hiring office help. And she came in for an office job and Pinkerton was so impressed with her that he hired her as an investigator. And she basically. Um, Solved a lot of cases for the Pinkerton agency that no one else could solve. Um, and under the under the under you know kind of the uh, the, the way it worked is basically uh, sometimes men will say things to a woman that they will not say to another man, That's especially true. one who they might think is an authority or a police officer or something like that. So Kate um, did a lot of amazing cases. I mean, in, in real real life stuff. Um, when the war broke out, when the Civil War broke out, uh, Pinkerton uh, was uh, in charge of. Uh, uh, Union intelligence and Kate followed him around disguised as a man. There's actually photographs of Kate Warren in a camp with Alan Pinkerton and General Grant and several other you know men in a military camp. And there's this one slender fellow with a bolero hat in the in the background, and that's Kate Warren. Uh-huh. Oh wow! So, so I mean, I think very, we've had this conversation with another author recently. Yes, we have. Sherry, oh, yeah. Sherry Priest used. Uh, that's right. Used the same historical figure. She's an amazing character. I have to go back and look because I'm not sure. She may have changed the name. But yeah, yeah, she may I have mean, changed the name. Uh, but she did. I, I believe she did. Uh, she did refer to uh, refer to this this same woman. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing and you know this is one of the, this is one of the things I really love about writing stuff that has a historical bent to it is I really enjoy going back and trying to find folks who history has, has kind of overlooked. Um, you know, and you you have you know Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp and uh, oh uh, Doc Holliday and all these guys they get a lot of of play. Someone should make a movie about Kate Warren because her life. She helped protect uh, Lincoln, got him into the Capitol when this there was an assassination plot afoot. This is before he was ever inaugurated as president, uh, sworn in, and oh they bless you, and uh, they uh, they basically uh, Kate came up with the plan to bring Lincoln in on the train disguised. And she was his personal bodyguard during that, and it was a very serious plot. There was there was a lot of concern that he was not going to make it to his his inauguration, and um, it says a lot that Pinkerton put her in charge of the whole thing and let her carry it out herself. Um, there there was impressive. there's also a lot of um, there's some speculation that Pinkerton and Kate may have had a had an affair. Um, well, they're other, always going to say that, aren't they? Yeah, have to course. make it about the naughty. Yeah, and, and actually, it's interesting because. Um, there was also well, there's another camp that says that you know basically he, Kate was like the daughter that apparently he never had. Um, so uh, what is interesting is when she she passed away, um, she was buried at Alan at the bottom of Alan Pinkerton's uh, burial plot. Mm-hmm. So she was actually buried as if she was a member of the family. So um, uh, and I, in my book, uh, Kate Warren was already officially dead for a couple of years before she comes to Golgotha. So. Um, in mine, basically, she was part of this this government agency that uh, looks into weird uh, weird things mm-hmm. that stuff that happened during the Civil War that no one could explain. And um, as part of her uh, cover, you know, she basically had to fake her own death. So, um, and that's kind of a handy thing too because that means I can kind of you know do whatever I want to with that character now because she's sort of off the historical grid. It's not like I have to worry about saying, oh, well, she was here at this point or this at that point. Uh, with some characters historically, you have to be kind of careful not to... You don't, want, you don't want to, like, trip over too much history while you're writing the fiction. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm particularly intrigued by the character of Maud, uh, who is introduced very early in the book, uh, who has remarkable abilities and bordering, bordering on the supernatural. There's no bordering about it. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Okay. yeah, if you get a little further in, as a matter of fact, my editor at one point, basically, Susan, you've, you've read the whole book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know near the end where she has a little uh, little tussle in the kitchen with uh, some bad people? Basically, uh, I, I had her doing some things there that were pretty uh, uh, John Woo kind of stuff. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. um, and basically... Um, my editor writes me a thing and says, "Did you mean to write this this way? Because you know, is she really that strong? I mean, should she really do this?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's just, I know it's over the top, but yeah, yeah I really uh, want her to be able to do this." We need a backstory on on her and her her family and her her foremothers. Uh, yeah, you could you could pull a whole novel out of her. It's funny you should mention that. No. Uh, <laughs> um, you get a lot more of Maud's so. backstory in in, uh, in Six Gun Tarot. You know, that's where she's first introduced, and uh, do find a bit more about her training and who trained her. Who was another historical figure? Uh, just a bit more in general about uh, uh, the Daughters of Lilith, which is the secret cult organization that she's part of. I've got a couple, of, like two or three books, I want to kind of follow up with in the in the coming year. One of them would be a Maud Stapleton book, and I would yes. love to do that if. If Tor is, is interesting, it's, it's really going to be up to them, and I, and I hope they will. I mean, I think if I can present them with what I want to do, um, at the end of Shotgun Arcana, I uh, presented some 
uh, some plot threads that I would love to address in a mod book. I think uh, so, yes. Yeah. There may and, be some uh, nieces I, of Lilith or something running around. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and a lot and some of it is historical, too, because uh, Maud is, is is fighting with her father over issues of property and inheritance. <laughs> uh, you know, she's that is sadly authentic to the period also. Y- yes, and... Uh, I really would like to do some stuff with that. I think that would be really, uh, really interesting to do. I'd have a good time doing it, and I think people would would enjoy it. And they seem to really like the character. Maud seems to be one of the characters that uh, people identify with. And I don't think it's just because of of her kind of, I guess, superpowers for lack of a better word. She's kind of like Buffy, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, she's got she's got some Buffy kind of kind of traits to her. She she's but but I also think that a lot of what she's gone through in her life, a lot of people can relate to. A lot of racism in the book, which sadly is also authentic to the period. Yeah, and I get dinged on that too. I, I actually had someone say something pretty nasty along the lines of, "You know, you're just offending people of of, of all kinds of different you know races in this book." And I, 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 I'm sorry if if it's offensive, but it's also it's how it's how you deal with it. It's how you rise above it that. You know, I, 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 but there were people like that. I'm sorry, and there's still yeah, there, there still are. And back then, um, much more so, it was institutionalized. Um, it still is to a certain degree, but it was much more so. You know, in the 1800s, um, I I've tried to kind of walk a real tight line there because I don't want to be gratuitous about that sort of thing, but I also don't want to candy coat it because mm-hmm. um, I think that that's. That's that unfair. does a disservice to the people who survived it, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I actually think that some of the, you know, some of the the, the folks I get the, a lot of the, the grief about the racism from are younger people, and I honestly think that maybe to a certain degree they cannot conceive fully that this was reality, that this was this was how things were at a certain point, and uh, unfortunately it, it was. And I and I do try to you know kind of balance it with a certain degree of ah, I won't say humor. But, um, well, there's a scene in Shotgun where um, uh, our deputy, uh, Mutt, is getting about to get strung up by basically a citizen's vigilance committee for having the audacity of being seen in the company of a white woman. And I had a lot of fun making the, the guys who are going to string him up uh, come off like the racist idiots that they were. Well, that's so, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was a lot of fun, actually. So um, The purebloods didn't like him much either. I mean, you know. So no, that... no, it's, exactly. I mean, and that's, and that's actually something. I got a, a nice email uh, from someone who said that they really respected and liked the fact that, that um, I didn't try to uh, make the the Native Americans in the book into something. You know, I, I, I tried to present them as best my cultural research could do, and I'm, I'm no expert at well, all. They're human but... beings, and some are good, and some are bad, and some exactly. kick butt, exactly. you know. Exactly, and in the first book, in, in uh, Six Gun, Mud has to go home for a little while, and um, this is not really discussed too much in, in Shotgun. But basically, the reason he's called Mutt is because um, his particular tribe, you, you received your name when you became a man. And they chased his mother and him out of the tribe before he ever got a name. So he, he chose a name for himself. Sort of um, – there's that wonderful little scene in um, in Game of Thrones, at least in the TV show, uh, where Tyrion is talking to Jon Snow. And he basically says, you know, you're a bastard. I'm a bastard. Well, you know, oh, you're a bastard. I'm a dwarf. You know, uh, wear that like armor. Wear it like armor, and, and the world can't hurt you with it. Yeah, and, and that's a that's, brilliant scene, and that is from the book. Yeah, and, and basically that is 
that is all that when I, when I saw that scene, I was like, that is much. That is exactly what, where he's at. Well, he and he's a half has, breed. That, that just says it right up front. Yeah. And he basically, you know, he carries a lot of pain and a lot of anger, but he tries to carry it with a smile and with, with a very, very sharp wit. <laughs> I, yes. I tried to, tried to make Mutt as, uh, as sardonic a character as I possibly could. And uh, I had a lot of fun with that, too, because, uh, you know, he's, he's in a, an awful position. He he's really is someone caught between worlds and he in, in many different senses. So um, he tries to make the best of that he can. I hope, uh, I hope folks uh, are sympathetic to him. I do get a lot of good feedback on Mutt. What I like uh, uh, about the characterizations is that every single one of them is deep. I mean, just deep right down to the roots. Deep. They have. They are people. They're not just they cardboard cutouts exactly. to knock over. I can't. I can't think of any characters uh, in there at all that appear pasted on. And you have such a deep understanding of every single one of your characters that they live and breathe for you, and it makes them easy to write for. Uh, and I really appreciate you guys saying that too, because that means a lot to me. I, I the framework, the plot of the Golgotha book so far is is pretty much traditional Western stuff. I tried to make it as traditionally Western as I could. You know, you have train robbers and, and shootouts and, you know, stuff like that. And the Tongs in Chinatown, too. Yes, yeah. And, I mean, I really, for me, the thing I'm the most proud of and the thing that I, it always makes me so happy to hear is when people say they, they really like and believe in my characters because I really think that's the most important thing in fiction. I, I, that's the thing I'm most proud of. So thank you very much. That, that means a lot to, to hear you guys say that. I, I really appreciate that. Well, it goes back to Aristotle's Poetics. You know, this is uh, one of the books that they make you read in in uh, film school um, when you're learning how to build story in the first place. Character drives the plot, but the plot shapes the characters. Yes, and uh, you have a chicken and the egg problem, and you can lean mm-hmm. you can lean the the tree to the left or to the right, but at the end of the day, you've still got to have a tree. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know? and I mean, and the, and the plot is basically what you throw these people against, and mm-hmm. just like in real life. The, the things that we, that we, we crash into, the things that, that we don't expect, the things that we don't want to deal with, the things that, that come at us in the middle of the night, out of the blue, those are the things that define us, and they're the things that, that shape us. You, you know, you'll get to your plot as, as you need to, um, but you can't do it at the, at the cost of your, of your characters. I see that happen in comic books a lot. It drives me nuts. Mm. Oh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big comic geek, and uh, back when they did Civil War in Marvel, um, the Civil War uh, comic... They had like four or five of their major characters who had like 30 plus years of, of history, um, acting just totally counter to their, to their characters. And it was because they needed them to do that for the plot. Mm-hmm. And that's a very annoying, I don't, I don't like because, that. Because, because if they hadn't done that, then they would have had an extra five or six issues threading the story around to the point where it made sense for them too. Right. And, and this is what happens when you have an ensemble. And this is what you dealt with so well in uh, Shotgun Arcana. Well, yeah, but... It, you wove all the stories knows together. How, yeah, well, yes and no, but especially we don't know how John Highfather is going to react to something. We do know how Captain America is going to react to something. Right, right. You yeah, new, yeah, yeah. When you have new but, characters, you don't have the same problems well, as that, that, that that's that's While that's true, uh, I think... Uh, uh, that uh, characters like uh, John Highfather, I mean, they have an internal consistency, and you can sense that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, and the more the more I write them, the, the more it, I mean, that's one of the things that I did really like about writing the sequel about you know, mm-hmm. Shotgun. They're going to start talking was, to you. They're going to tell you what they're going to do. I think that um, the further along you go in a series, um, the, it it becomes more of the same issue as like you have with Captain America mm-hmm. is. 
why is John Highfather acting this way? And and we all have. Um, I'm trying to remember. You read them in high school. Um, the Thomas Covenant books. Uh, Stephen Stephen Donaldson. Um, there at a certain point in that series, I remember just throwing the book, going, "What the hell is this?" Because it, it was it was like suddenly the character had made this complete right turn, um, and it seemed completely fake and inorganic, and it didn't. It was like I was pulled completely out of the book because the character was acting in a way that didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And it just got him really to didn't. got him to the finish line by page four hundred and thirty-two. Right, and, and, and that, and was, think, that was the I only think, reason. Yeah, and by the time you get to a certain you know place in a series. I think it really is. If you're going to keep writing the series, um, you owe it to the folks, the nice folks who read your stuff and like your stuff and buy your stuff to give them consistency. I'm not saying that characters can't sometimes act uh, different than they would normally act, but it's up to you to explain to the reader why. You can't just decide, oh, I'm having a lousy day, so today this character is going to act this way. And I'm not really going to explain it or even bother trying to explain it. Um, I, don't, I think that's really unfair to your readers. And uh, I am so immensely grateful that anybody wants to read my silly little stories that I am very, very, uh, very grateful and very aware of, of that. And I really hope that I never get to a place where I'm not taking into account that I want to give the folks who read the book a good, a good story. I want to give them a good story, and I want to give them the very best writing I can give them, which includes trying to do the characters uh, justice, trying to, trying to be fair to them and, and write them the way they should be written. It sounds like you had a really great editor to work with as well. I mean, he, um, he was working awesome. with you at uh, at the structural level. Greg where, where it really uh, makes a like difference. He's making you a better writer. I think he is. I mean, this is my this is my second book, um, and uh, I am fortunate enough that Tor has purchased two more novels from me. Yeah. Uh, one is coming out uh, in August called Nightwise, um, and then I have another one that I'm working on currently. The working title is uh, The Brotherhood of the Wheel, which is a new series. Greg is my editor for all of them, uh, and I am very privileged to work with him because he is a consummate professional. He, he really is. He, um, he's, he's just an amazing and – and I used to do magazine and newspaper writing. I did that for over a decade. Um, mm-hmm. So I've worked with a lot of editors, and a good editor can really you – know, one, one of the kind of the axioms is trust your editor. You, you have to trust them. If you don't trust them, you shouldn't be working with them. Um, and I do trust Greg and he has really pulled some good things out of, out of me. And, uh, and, and the other thing that's really great is he's not only a great editor, he, you know, he writes his own stuff. He has a, like I said, he has a Trek book out right now. He does at least a couple of Star Trek books a year. Um, he does uh, a lot of guaranteed sellers no matter what. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, I don't know how, how how deep you guys are into the, into the Trek fiction. Oh, Oh, are we, we met at a, at a Star Trek club in the mid 1970s. That's. That's Very cool. Far back we go. That's there was awesome. no oh. next generation. Are we actually missing any of the James Bush books? No. Oh no. wow. I had all of them. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> and then I annotated. My okay. heart is swelling. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> we got but, we got to hang out sometime. That's all. Very cool. Absolutely. Well, you guys, um, you guys are in L.A., right? This yeah, is, we're in L.A. Um, if you ever make it, this I was actually supposed to come out to California. Um, the nice folks at tour had me set up with some uh, appearances out there. Um, and unfortunately, I'm right now. I'm taking care of my mother. She's she's not doing too well. Oh dear. So I've had to kind of stay close to that's close a, to home this year. And, you know, and I don't I don't regret that. I I've always wanted mm-hmm. to go out west and see see it out there. Um, and I will make it there eventually. But right now, I'm just trying to you know take care of her and keep kind of close to home. And well, and we may find you do. Uh, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we'll still uh, be here. There's 
know. If you guys hit any of the major conventions on the East Coast, I, I would love to to catch up with you guys. But but Greg, one of the things I would say is Greg um, wrote the um, the Eugenics War books, uh, which oh, I don't right. know if you guys have a chance to read or not. But uh, there was a, a trilogy, I think, that was centered around the Eugenics War and Khan and Ian Singh and all of that stuff. And uh, they were very popular. He's written those. Um, the book he has out now, and I'm, I'm blanking a little bit on the title, I think it's like Foul Deeds Will Rise, I believe is what it's called, is uh, having to do with um, that wonderful episode of the original series where they had the uh, the uh, the players doing, uh, the, the, the theater troupe doing Macbeth, I believe oh, it was. Yes, yes. Um, his whole yes. premise in this is, whatever happened to, to Lenore, to the daughter, who was doing, you know, all the terrible things that I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen the series. Um, but, you know what? Uh, I, think, I think after 50 years, the spoiler alerts are off. You know, if you, if, you, if you haven't watched all the Star Treks from the original series at least like 50 times by now, what are you doing listening What's to the What's wrong with show? you? <laughs> That's right. You need, to, you need to go immediately and watch all of them. I got They're dinged, on Netflix, for, God's I got sakes. dinged for spoilers for Lord of the Rings. And I'm going, it's been a book, for God's really? sakes. Really? Really? <laughs> yes, it's... Um, but uh, but yeah, so Greg um, Greg is a wonderful editor. I'm very privileged to work with him, and I'm looking forward to continuing that association as long as he'll have me. And um, I, I really really do enjoy uh, working with him. He's a great, very organic editor. Um, when when Greg asked me, "Are you sure you want to do this, or is this the way you really want to do this, or this may not be the best way to do it?" I really listened to him because. So far, he's been right every time. <laughs> well, and a lot of writers will complain about editors. Editor is not a dirty word. There's a lot of writers out there who really, I don't think, would be where they're at in their careers without without the editors behind them. And that's, oh, that's something, you don't, something you don't hear a whole lot of. And a lot of writers would probably, you know, hang me from a tie tree uh, <laughs> for saying that. But I, I really think that's true. And I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, sometimes you do have to, there have been times when Greg said, you know, uh, why, why don't we change this to that? And I've, I've been like, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm good with that that way. And um, there's actually, a, there's actually a little piece in, um, in Nightwise that's coming out that uh, I had several of my beta readers suggest I change it. And I believe, if I remember correctly, Greg, Greg suggested I change it. And I kept it the way it is, and I'm waiting to see how that goes over, if I was right or if I was wrong. So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll see. But... Sometimes you got to murder your darlings, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's the first you know, you... thing they taught us in you know, oh, yes. class. <laughs> and nobody listens. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's uh, actually one of the things I've, I've been told is I need to – you need to start killing some people off in the Golgotha series, and I'm. You, I, you, you know, are starting yeah, to pile you, up a body count. And I'm and I'm like, you know, I'm, too many I'm of them the walking around. I'm trying, I'm trying, <laughs> but they just won't die. I gotta back. up the game a little bit there. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm very thankful for the the, the editorial work I've I got to have uh, so far, and and like I said, I'm hoping I keep getting to work with uh, with Greg as long as uh, as long as we can. So, well, he's got me through three books, and hopefully, uh, I'm actually, I'm sure he's. Waiting around for me to get this fourth book to him, which I, like I said, I'm hoping to have it done by the end of December. Is my. I was about to say that's, that's approaching. So. Yeah. It's, so it's of all like the a freight train of all the characters uh, who are most death averse, Clay Turlow is probably <laughs> uh, is probably the character who who probably is. So that's probably the first one you need to put through the ringer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, and I, do I, it in an interesting way to make him so that his his uh, his particular talents. Uh, preserve him in an <laughs> unusual state that allows you to keep using him as a character anyway. Um, there, there is some, 
there is some heartbreak coming for Clay and and yeah, Clay and some of the other characters. Clay, uh, Augustus Schultz, um, Jillian Schultz, who is mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. Augie's uh, wife, yeah. Mrs. Schultz, and uh, and then uh, Goethe, who was Augie's wife until her unfortunate demise, um, is uh, th- those characters uh, have had their own little kind of their own little soap opera going on. As sort of a <laughs> sort of side sort of sidebar during the course of all this horrible stuff's going on in the town, and um, sort uh, of and a then resonant foursome. Yeah, it's it is it is a it is a bizarre little romantic uh, quandary, and um, yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Um, it seems to have worked itself out pretty well by the end of Shotgun. Uh, I don't want to spoil <laughs> that for anybody who hasn't read it yet. Um, but uh, you, but you know, Susan, you've read it, so you know kind of what I'm talking about. Mm. And some, of, and some of the things that were kind of left uh, unanswered at the end of Shotgun. Um, fortunately, if I if I do get to do this third, which is like I was saying before, I'd really like to do a mod book this coming year, mm-hmm. and I'd really like to do a third six gun or third so Dalgatha Gat- book. Gatling gun, I guess, would be the next uh, logical um, step. Well, the the well, for the, the for the firearms the work, side, yeah. The, the, the working title in my head right now is the Ghost Dance War, and um, mm. I don't know if that's going to play out or not but that's that um that, there is that's very evocative and there's there's actually you know i dropped some dropped some hints about what's going on with that in uh in shotgun but the time frame is right for the first ghost dance movement and yeah, i'm uh, afraid it is and uh and it's, it's a very interesting so very interesting uh and i really haven't had a chance to i've been trying to build towards um addressing some of the some of the bigger I guess historical issues that were kind of coming. I've I've tried real hard to keep Golgotha's for this little island, and um, and slowly, you know, just you know, the, the Transcontinental Railroad is is finished by the time of uh, just finished by the time of um, of Shotgun. So um, I have some mention about the Transcontinental Railroad, um, and and basically uh, you're starting to get to the point where where the the friction between uh, the the white culture and the Native American culture is starting to get uh, get pretty harsh, and um, that's something I really want to kind of explore, especially since um, I have you know the character of Mutt is is really like one of the things that happens a lot in Shotgun Arcana is he really gets you know he gets presented with an opportunity to kind of be sort of a uh, an advocate for his people and uh, for for all Native Americans, not just his tribe. And um, he he takes that opportunity, but in doing so, he's opening himself up to a to just a, a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. And um, and and basically, that's one of the things I would really be interested in in looking into. And and I really like the notion because you know at the core of all this is it's supernatural, it's fantasy. Um, you know, a, a big part of the ghost dance movement was uh, that you know the dead were going to be coming back. All the spirits of the dead would be returning. They would drive the white men out of the the Native Americans' lands. Um, they they had uh, philosophy. Or they had like uh, uh, mythologies, like the ghost shirts. Which, if you wore a ghost shirt, it was a blessed shirt. Basically, bullets would pass through you; they wouldn't hurt you. And I got to thinking, what if that was real? What if? What yeah, if, I was about to what, say, you know, you know what, you could just... what if those things start happening? It, it might it might uh, start to change the uh, the history of the West a bit. Um, and uh, I, I really like the idea of, of trying to explore some of that. And then I've got some some very serious dangling plot thread threads. Uh, in uh, in shotgun that uh, I want to address as well. Uh, that uh, so I've, I've got at least a couple of uh, a couple of pretty decent ideas for plots for a third book, 
and uh, and I've definitely I've already started in, you know kind of mapping out some stuff for um, for a mod book, which I think would be really great because basically be if I could awesome. address the stuff in, in the mod book and then have it lead into the third uh, third Golgotha book, that would be wonderful. But again, it's going to depend a lot on uh, my publisher, and uh, it's also going to depend on me getting them something that they can can evaluate and decide whether they want to go ahead with it or not. So I got my <laughs> I got, I got, got your next uh, four years all laid out for you. Yeah, well, and, and actually, uh, last year I was able to pull off like three books, and this year has only been oh, that's one good. because of. Well, this year has been one, but it's been primarily because of, you know, family uh, health issues and things like that that I've needed to address. And, um, but I'm really hoping this coming year I can get back to three books. The third book I'm I'm very excited about is actually a, um, it's kind of a, an urban fantasy, mixed with a space opera. Um, hmm. It's based off of a weird little historical gadget that uh, I, I uh, discovered through. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Kenneth Height at all, but uh, he uh, he does a wonderful column called Suppressed Transmission, which is full of just odd little nuggets from history that are just fascinating. And, and one of his columns gave me an idea for something, and uh, I kind of pursued it. And, and I don't know if you guys have ever read any of the Doc Smith. Uh, e. Oh Doc yes, Smith. all of them. Okay, cover to cover I'm try- several I want to do kind of like a modern version of the Skylarker space. Is what okay. I kind of like to do. It's sort of uh-huh. a little more contemporary. So, so it's sort of an urban fantasy space opera kind of thing um, that I would really love to do because I I love that stuff. That's one of the those are the things I just ate up when I was a kid. Was oh yeah, me too. Of, because know, it, I it, love those. it it brings it brings you to the idea that you know this this is something that could happen to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, because I, I, it starts I really like it idea. starts in your own world. Taking a bunch of contemporary folks and throwing them out into like literally another galaxy, um, and and then seeing how they how they deal with it, which I think is kind of fun. It's um, a lot of times one of the problems with, uh, with science fiction and space opera is you're dealing with characters who are fully immersed in that world already. Mm-hmm. So you're already starting a little bit behind the eight ball as the reader. You're playing catch up, and uh, you know in some worlds like Dune, you need a, a, a freaking you know lexicon of words so you know what they're even talking about. Um, that's why Doctor and, Who has it right. They've got yes. they've got a companion who is like someone relatively normal who who is your right. representative to your gate. Yeah, your gateway. And that's actually kind of what Jim was in the first book, mm-hmm. and, and a little bit in this one too. More so in the first book, Jim uh, Just a regular Jim kid, yeah. is is your is your gateway kid. He your your character that you he's learning the stuff as you learn it, and that yeah, gives you a little bit of a, of a of a kind of a, of a window to look through that you can kind of relate to a little bit more. And I really like the idea of doing like a and again. I got a lot of work to do on this, and this may never see the light of day, but I'm having fun, you know, I've written about, I don't know, uh, I think maybe about five or six chapters in it, Um, and I would love to see it, I'm going to finish it no matter what, even if I don't sell it, I'm still going to finish it, but I really do, I've always loved space opera, um, and I love the idea of doing something with space opera where you're dealing with folks who are from you know from our our time, you know, contemporary contemporary folks thrown into a, a really fantastic kind of a world and uh, with all this different technology and stuff like that and how they would adapt and how mm-hmm. how they would react to it I think it'd be fun that's are you that's do, the main thing fun is important do you have <laughs> any uh, do you have any uh, appearances coming up in January that Let's uh, see. our uh, East Coast listeners might be might be interested oh. in might be interested in meeting you. I would I would love to meet you guys anytime. You you, you let me know where you're at. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm in Virginia. No, I mean, books, bookstores uh, I, or yeah, I was up at signs? I was up at World Fantasy. Uh, uh-huh. The folks at Tor. My my mother has been in and out of the hospital, and I actually had to cancel. Like I said, the California trip, and I I really was very 
just you know, I didn't really want to do that, but I, re I felt I needed to. Mm -hmm. And the folks at Tor, the marketing folks, uh, a lady named Patty Garcia, who's their head of marketing, and my uh, publicist, um, uh, Adina Johnson, they were both amazing. They were just so understanding. They were so nice. And um, and Patty actually approached me about coming up to World Fantasy for one day just to get away. Um, and I got to take my son with me. Mm -hmm. We went up there. I got to have uh, lunch with Tom Doherty, the, the head of, of mm -hmm. Tor, mm -hmm. publisher of Tor, and uh, wonderful man, really nice guy. And um, these folks just took time out of their day to make this happen and to give me just a little, you know, a little break. I got to meet a lot of great people, um, a lot of folks that I, um, you know, have met through the internet and things like that, but I hadn't met in person. Got to run, catch up with a few old friends, and it was just a wonderful experience. Um, I think the next event I'm going to be at is I am a uh, writer guest at Mysticon, which is here in mm -hmm. Roanoke, Virginia. It is a really cool convention, and it's it's grown a lot in the last few years. Um, their uh, writer guest this year is Alan Dean Foster, mm -hmm. um, who is very – I'm very much excited about meeting him. Um, oh, I didn't get to tell you my Larry Nevin story. I'll tell you really quick. <laughs> okay. It's, we, it's talked about really this, we talked about this a little um, bit before. I was, I was uh, at uh, another convention, which was uh, called ShivaCon. Uh -huh. I was at ShivaCon, and I was on a uh, – a panel, I believe it was Shubhakan. Yeah, I think it was Shubhakan. I saw a panel with, uh, I was actually the moderator of a panel with uh, with Larry Niven. It was me and Larry Niven and an hour. And unfortunately, um, I, uh, I I tied one on the night before. I was not in the, exactly mm. what you call you know peak like fighting condition. And I dragged my hungover ass out of bed and staggered to the uh, to the <laughs> panel. I'm, I'm wearing like my the same clothes from the night before. I look. Like I look like I should be like you know hustling change outside the door to the hotel, and <laughs> and I'm like going I'm sitting there going down I'm going okay it's Larry Niven he's got like a million stories the guy has been in the business forever everyone knows him he's written everything this will be so easy I'll just I'll just feed him I'll give him a little intro I'll feed him it'll be fine so I get in there I, I give him this great introduction I wind him up for this big question I throw it out to him and Larry Niven looks at me and goes no and that's it. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Oh um, god. Larry Niven is an awesome guy. And I actually remember sharing an ice cream sandwich with him once at PsyCon, um at like four in the morning or something. But um he's a very nice man. He just doesn't talk a lot. He he's, listens he's a, a lot. He listens he a whole bunch. A <laughs> and it's exactly what I didn't need him to do. I needed him to just be Gabby, 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 and he wasn't. Um oh. so I, I, I struggled oh. through. I learned my lesson. Um, but, uh, I, I, I just, that's always been one of my little, you know, fun. And actually it was really cool because at the time, um, I had written a, uh, short story for, uh, Star Trek for Simon and Schuster, uh, Strange New Worlds, the, the, the series they put out where mm -hmm. it was basically, uh, fiction written by fans who were not, uh, yet considered professional writers. And I won the grand prize, um, and got my story in Strange World, Strange New Worlds 9. And I, I gave him a copy of it. I said, you know, you're, you know, you've written for Star Trek, and I just, I wanted to give you this. It's an honor to meet you. And this was at the end of the panel, after, after the Bataan Death March of panels. Uh, it was like, okay, here's, here's this book. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you. You've been, you know, I've loved your writing and been a big fan of yours. And he says, well, will you sign it for me? Oh. And I was like, oh my god. Oh. So I was like, yeah. So I, I signed. Because I Larry gets a copy it. Of the book for, for Larry Niven, and that made me very happy. So. Because Larry gets it. I mean, this, it's Susan's, Susan's absolutely right. This is why Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven make such a good pair because, uh, they complement each they, other. Yes. Yes. He's, he's quiet yes. as a mouse and Pornell 
can't stop uh, talking. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but he has a lot to say. Always has a lot to say, and it's always interesting. But yeah. man, yes. that guy can go. Oh yes, I've, anyway. I've actually heard I've seen some interviews with him, and, and they, they are they're a wonderful team. They're the, they are. Uh, yes. The, um, but uh, yeah, so I'll be at Mysticon. It's at the end of February. It's the last weekend okay. of February here in Roanoke. Um, their uh, media guest is uh, the gentleman who played Simon in uh, Firefly. Oh, okay. um, and he's, uh, you know, so uh, he'll be there. Alan Dean Foster is a writer guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will be there along with a legion of other writers and, and other media folks. And it's a great convention. It's a lot of fun. Um, that's my next appearance as far as I know. Um, I'm going to be at Con Carolinas, which is a fairly big uh, convention in North Carolina. Oh, I hear good things uh, about that one. Yeah, that's actually I've I've heard a lot of good stuff about that one too. My Star Trek people I mean, all seem to go to that one. So. Yes, yeah, and I'm um, looking forward to that one. I'm going to be a guest there. Um, trying to think, uh, I think that's all I got on my on my you know calendar right now. I, I'm uh, if there's any cons out there that'd like to uh, have me, I, I promise I won't get drunk the night before the panel. And, uh, <laughs> well, we're we're yeah, planning to go to uh, WorldCon this year, so who knows? I've uh, I've been to DragonCon for a few years, and I. I um, I always enjoy Dragon Con, but Dragon Con is so huge. It's um, and you guys live in LA, so I. I I've I'm been always, to Dragon Con. I'm, actually. I'm using this analogy, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I always heard that it's like it takes 45 minutes to get anywhere in LA. That it basically it's like it's basically live. true. Yeah, you, you want to go to the go to the corner store. It takes 45 minutes to get there, even if it's three blocks away. So basically, Dragon Con reminds me of that. It's like if you care, if you're in the hotel where the panel is, you're staying there. It takes you an hour probably to get down the elevator through the the you know masses of people to get to your mm-hmm. panel, which is then probably already full, and you can watch it on a monitor somewhere. Yeah. Um, now I was going to it like 20 years ago, and they would have separate tracks or sp- special interests, and that's kind of where I hung out. Well, I have, a, nice. I have a fun place in my heart for Dragon Con because that's where I sold. Six Gun Tarot. Uh-huh. Well, well, you know, that's actually, I mean, I went to a, a tour panel and met this this wonderful lady uh, named Stacy Hill, who's one of their editors. And uh, Stacy, I pitched her, you know, the the whole uh, uh, Zane Gray meets H.P. Lovecraft. And she, bless her heart, she said, well, we're, we're looking for Westerns right now. And um, basically that was my, my intro, kind of my, my, my foot in the door. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon. You've been listening to R.S. Belcher, uh, uh, author of the Shotgun Arcana from Tor Press. It's yes. very nice to meet both of you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're, you're so welcome. It's been a pleasure having you aboard. You have just heard episode 83 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for December 20th, 2014. Our guest was science fantasy writer R.S. Belcher, author of the Western steampunk novels The Six-Gun Tarot and The Shotgun Arcana, both from Tor Books, distributed by Macmillan Press. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio's station manager Gene Turnbow and our executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on December 21st, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. Our production manager is Kat Carter. And sound engineering is done by Gene Turnbow. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi 
for your Wi-Fi.